welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Well, good morning again. It is great to worship with you this morning. And it's like I mentioned before, it is an exciting day in the life of the church. Uh, Watching discipleship happen uh, in the CGS classroom. I've gotten to hear all about it all week from uh, my wife, who is one of the catechists. And and she and Maggie and the other catechists have just done such an amazing job getting that ready. So I'm really excited for the ways that that's going to continue for years to come forming disciples of Jesus. Well, let me pray for us as we begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, would you speak to us this morning? Would you give us ears to hear the ways that your Spirit wants to transform us by your grace? We pray this through the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, we're continuing in our series, and we're calling Nations and Neighborhoods, where we've been looking at God's plan of salvation for the nations, which is part of the, the season of Epiphany. It's one of the themes that comes out of it, and how that salvation for the nations is intertwined with the neighborhoods in which we live. And the more that you and I, as we dig into this area, uh, South Fairfax County, the more we discover shifting senses of identity that we find in Fairfax County. Um, those shifting senses of ideas of, of identity are based on issues like race or heritage or religious affiliation, geographic location, and culture. Those all shift over time. And the gravity even of population density changes in this area based on what kind of transportation is being used, whether that's a car or trains. And then it changes around things like immigration. Uh, There are shifting identities in Fairfax County as we dig over the last several hundred years. And all of those things, all of those shifting senses of identity, they all leave a mark somehow in the neighborhoods that you and I are a part of and in which we live. And one of the early groups that I want to talk about this morning that left a mark on this South County area were the Quakers. You may not know this, but the Quakers, uh, when they came to the East Coast, they eventually came down to Virginia as well and set up meeting houses all over called the Society of Religious Friends. And because the Quakers had this emphasis on something of God in each one of us and the priesthood of all believers, they really had no place for church hierarchy, which obviously makes us terrible Quakers. Um, and, and they had no place then, uh, even though er- originally, early on, they did own slaves. By the time you get to the Revolutionary War, they all pretty much become abolitionists because of their view of the image of God being in all people. And this week, I discovered a fascinating story of a Quaker in in our target region as we pray about where we serve. His name was Jonathan Roberts. And so you can actually see up on the map, there's a little mark for Roberts' name where his property was. There's actually a book written about him uh, called Jonathan Roberts, The Civil War's Quaker, Scout, and Sheriff. Um, In 1848, he had purchased this land between the Pohick and the Akatink Creeks, where those two meet, uh, in what would eventually become uh, 
well, it'd be called Cedar Grove, but it was originally the Cedar Grove Plantation. And the closest township to the Cedar Grove area was the township of Akatink, which again is no longer a town. If you Google Akatink, Virginia, all you're gonna get is stuff about the creek. There was a town. It had a school, it had a post office, it had a store, and it was its own voting precinct. So both Cedar Grove and Akatink are now part of what we know of today as Fort Belvoir. You actually need some sort of clearance to get there, uh, even if that's just a guest pass for a couple months. Roberts became a, a surveyor um, for Fairfax County, which gave him a thorough knowledge of all of Fairfax County, the places, but also the people. Because he was a Quaker, he made friendships among enslaved, uh, individual, enslaved individuals, freed people, and uh, Native Americans. And in 1861, there was a statewide vote in Virginia about whether to secede. Um, and in Fairfax County, there were 14 voting precincts, and only three of them voted to uh, stay to stay in, in the Union and, and not secede from, from the United States. One of those precincts was the town of Akatink, in which Roberts had a politi political influence. So you can imagine somebody living in Fairfax County at the time, what kind of target was on the back of him and his family. And because he had a thorough knowledge of the area and the people, he was brought on by the Union Army as a scout, uh, which is not what you would expect of a Quaker, but he was. He provided information to the troops uh, in the Union Army because of his uh, surveying background and his friends, friendships with slaves and freed people and Native Americans. Because of his advocacy for paid labor uh, and equality of people, as well as his northern roots and his Quakerism, Again, he becomes almost like public enemy number one to most people in Fairfax County at the time, both officials and residents. So the death threats became so bad that eventually he had to take his whole family and move to Alexandria. By 1862, um, after the loss uh, in the area uh, of the war, Governor Francis Pierpoint, he was the uh, governor of the restored government of Virginia at the time. And he ordered that all government officials in Virginia needed to take an oath of allegiance to the United States. Well, it, because those in Fairfax County weren't loyal to the United States, but were loyal to the Confederacy, their positions were considered vacant at the time in Fairfax County. They lost all their positions. And so Roberts was then appointed as a special commissioner for Fairfax County. Again, this Quaker scout sheriff. And, and he became the elected sheriff in 1862. He advocated for reconstruction. And ultimately, though, through his time of, of all of this, he, he eventually gave up. Um, he was trying to overturn a broken culture. Uh, and, and he and his wife uh, couldn't do it, and it became too much. And so they ended up moving to Iowa. Uh, where his wife died, and then he moved to New Jersey, where he died and was buried. And because of the work of Roberts and other Quakers like him in the area, uh, and other people like him in the area, Virginia eventually did become a place where former slaves now had the right to vote, where the most senior leaders of the Confederacy lost their right to vote, where a voice vote was abolished uh, because of voter intimidation and was replaced with a secret ballot, and then uh, a new system of free schools was established in the area. 
And so even though Roberts left, he did leave an indelible mark on the area. And so when we look at his land today and the land around it, uh, that actually became part of Camp Humphreys, which was purchased by the U.S. military in 1917 as, the, as a training camp for World War I. And Humphreys was actually a Civil War general, but for the Union. And so in 1935, a Democratic representative in Virginia, Howard Smith, who revered the Confederacy, he actually requested that the name be changed to something else, back to the name of Lord Fairfax's slave plantation, which was called Belvoir uh, before the war. And so it's been called Fort Belvoir to this day. Now, rather than getting into all the political issues, I just name that because that is part of the area that we live in and we are called to serve. And that area, Fort Belvoir is its own census designated place on the map. And it has about 8,000 people. And so as we have context now, those 8,000 people, a lot of them are only going to be here for two or three years. And a lot of them are going to be here longer. Um, But we have an opportunity in the Fort Belvoir area to make disciples and to love people with the love of Christ. And so one of the lessons that I've been taking from the goodly Quaker, uh, Mr. Roberts, the Civil War era scout and sheriff is that, you know, the national geopolitical landscape is going to shift and change all the time. But our first calling and allegiance is to the kingdom of God. It's, it's an allegiance to bring the grace and truth of the gospel to the, all people who are made in God's image. All the people around us who are all made in God's image. The other lesson that I take from Roberts is that it's really important to think locally. Think locally when considering how the gospel is good news to the nations that are around us. It can be overwhelming to imagine the things that we can't change on the large scale. But when we think locally, it breaks it down into something manageable to to process. In our gospel passage today, Jesus invites several fishermen into a life of following him. There's this helpful paradigm that St. Luke lays out here, which is noticing Inviting and following. Noticing, inviting, following. As we follow Jesus, we are inviting others to do the same. And and that becomes compelling when we cultivate integrity in connecting those things that we believe about Jesus to the ways that those things are brought to bear on our lives and on our households and on the neighborhoods in which you and I live. I think it's interesting that Jesus took note of fishermen. We start with noticing. He took note of fishermen and the boats that they, had, they were on. There were far more prestigious people in the crowd that day than fishermen. But he doesn't take note of the important people in the crowd. He, take notes, he takes note of the boats. And also what's surprising to me from this passage is that we don't have any of the content from the sermon that he preached We really have no idea what he said that day. The most important thing that St. Luke is highlighting for us that day is that Jesus had an interaction with Peter. That's the most important thing here. And we don't know anything else that Jesus said other than uh, what he said to Peter in this passage. And that makes me wonder if uh, Jesus' noticing was less about the opportunity to preach and, and more about where to cultivate God's grace and soil um, 
in, in the soil of a heart that was ready to receive it. And Jesus' refusal to be enamored by the crowds uh, allows him to notice where God's grace is at work, which here is on the boat. As we pay attention, you know, what makes us feel pressed? Something I've been thinking about. And let's take note of the unassuming thing that may not be part of that noise. It's easy to be enamored with the noise. Um, Often noise is comforting. It's the place that makes us feel important. But whether, you know, avoiding the noise becomes playing with our children or taking a walk, doing a project, um, going for coffee with another human being, reading a book, gardening, just sitting and looking at the sun once it's warmer again. Um, The point is to just kind of push off slightly from the noise, Uh, push off from the shore to let the busyness be there. And for a brief moment to take note of where the grace of God is at work. What business did a carpenter's son have in telling fishermen how to fish? That might have been the thought that was going through Peter's mind and the other fishermen at the time. Given the fact that they actually tell him, you know, we've toiled all night and we haven't caught anything. But Jesus invites them into a small act of faith. It's a small act of faith that they let down their nets. um, And in a surprising turn of fortunes, these nets fill up. And they fill up until they're so heavy that they need to call their friends over to help them pull all the fish into the boat. That little act of faith shows them that Jesus... Uh, What he says is not just true, but what he says is actually good. That he's able to care for his people. Not just that Jesus is true, but what Jesus says is both true and good. So the, the grace and the truth piece. It's the same thing that he invites us all into as well. Jesus loves our broken souls. And quite frankly, he's better at giving us grace than we are at asking for it. Or receiving it. It wasn't just the preaching of Jesus that compelled Peter and the others to follow Jesus, but it was the the experience of Jesus's grace that compels Peter and the others. And that reminds me a little bit of that story about Jonathan Roberts. He had integrity in letting the grace that he'd experience inform his dealings with other people. There was an integrity. Now, he wasn't perfect. None of us are. But there was something compelling about him. There's something compelling about the way that he lived uh, in his integrity. There's something compelling when you and I live in integrity of having our voices and the things that we say match our actions, the ways that we treat others. When those things match up with the things that we believe about Jesus. And, and Jesus is full of grace uh, and truth. And so it follows that the gospel about him also has to be full of grace and truth. It is both right and good. And we have to live into the better life of grace that Jesus is calling us into if we're going to invite other people into that life of grace as well. So when Peter experiences the miraculous grace of Jesus, his first reaction is to understand completely how unworthy he is of Jesus's grace. He falls at Jesus's knees and he says, depart from me because I am a sinful man, O Lord. And I don't think that he's being falsely pious here. You know, he's not, he's not just saying, oh, I'm so sinful, Lord. But he really means it, actually. I think he really gets a glimpse of who Jesus is and how unworthy he is of Jesus. But the Christian life isn't a commitment to remain in our sorrows. 
um, about the things that we've done wrong or can't do right. That's not the call to the Christian life. But as Christians, we do commit ourselves to keep our need for God's grace and mercy before our eyes uh, in all the responsibilities and relationships that we are called to steward. Right? So we're not called to a life of just living in, in the sorrow of our failures. But we're called to remind ourselves constantly of our need for God's grace. St. Peter's honesty, I think, is the beginning of a successful ministry for him as a follower of Jesus. Um, Many of you know that I study Syriac, and so sometimes I try and pull from some of the early fathers of the church. And one of those is from um, St. Ephraim, the Syrian, who wrote a hymn actually about uh, this passage, a stanza about it. And he says, the twelve fishermen went out and netted the world. They caught kings from the sea of bitterness, freeborn men from the abyss of lust, and slaves from the stream of wickedness. And he uses that imagery of taking fish from the sea to show how these disciples and the apostolic call is to pull all kinds of people out of sin and death and bring them into the life of Christ. So the 12 fishermen went out and netted the world. And you and I are a part of that call. It's the same apostolic call on our bishops today. When you read through the liturgy of consecrating a bishop, that is an integral part of what they do. And they're called to train us to do that as followers of Jesus. It's why we plant churches so that those who have yet to hear the gospel in a locality, not only hear it, but they actually see it embodied in God's church. And you and I, uh, we've entered that apostolic call by being part of this church, by being part of the church. Peter's call then begins with the mercy of God. And then it continues as he leaves everything to follow Jesus. Jesus doesn't turn Peter away when Peter recognizes his sinfulness. That's important. When we recognize our sinfulness, Jesus doesn't turn us away. He approaches him and he approaches us with compassion. Sometimes we can be afraid of being honest with God about how broken we are, that we're useless. You know? But in this story, we actually see the character of God, that he approaches his broken people with compassion, like a physician, And not like a judge who is just waiting to condemn them, even though that is often the way that we perceive God. His ability to show compassion to his people far exceeds our ability to ask for it. Jesus takes notice of God's will uh, amidst all the busyness and the noise of the crowds. He invites Peter into the life of God and the kingdom significance that, that overlays his earthly vocation. Peter walks in faith because... Uh, based on the experience of the grace and the compassion of God. And you and I are called to make disciples, which involves uh, noticing what's around us. And then it involves inviting people into something better, imbuing their earthly vocation with kingdom significance, and then reminding them that following Jesus begins with faith uh, and encountering God's grace. So when you and I head down Poic Road and take a left and go north on Highway 1, or if we're going down Highway 1 south towards Woodbridge, um, you're going to pass uh, the Poic Church if you're going north, and you can just keep on driving north, and eventually you're going to see these big wide-open forests on the right-hand side. Let those forests remind you of Cedar Grove and the town of Akatink, which were there. 
and the Quakers, and specifically Jonathan Robertson, whose life of integrity and following Jesus was costly. And it became the thing that even though it was polarizing, it was also compelling. You know, whatever critiques we might level against the Quakers, what I appreciate about uh, John Roberts is the way that his faith informed the possessions that he stewarded and the relations that he formed amongst all kinds of people uh, who were his neighbors, his physical neighbors. So we want to be a people that thoughtfully searches out the grace of God and then connects our experience of God's grace with, with the ways that we view and that we interact with our neighbors. Even those who, with whom we have deep disagreements, uh, maybe they're up late at night singing at 11 o'clock at night. Whoever that is, you know, um, it informs the way that we interact with our neighbors. Integrating the truth of the gospel and the goodness of the gospel, the truth of God, the grace of God uh, is a deep and it's a lifelong work of the heart that flows out of the things that we steward. And it's that outflowing of the integrity of the gospel's truth and goodness that others are going to find compelling. And it's never going to fit into anybody's uh, system well. As we follow Jesus and inviting others into a life of discipleship, that is what becomes compelling. Let me pray for us. Look mercifully, O Father, on our infirmities. And for the glory of your name, rescue us from all those evils we now endure. And grant that in all our troubles, we may put our whole trust and confidence in your mercy, serving you in holiness and purity of life to your honor and glory. Through our only mediator and advocate, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.